everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady and I'm joined as always in the studio with Billy Galenko, albeit virtually. Billy, how you doing? Doing very well. How are you today, Brady? I'm doing okay. It's um, been really mild weather out here, which is nice because one, it's been in the 70s and not super humid, plus our house is kind of in a really shaded neighborhood. And so it's been really nice to be outside and be on walks and stuff. This work work from home can get difficult if uh, you're inside all day. Plus it's almost miserably hot to go out, but it's, it hasn't quite gotten there this time of year in the East Coast. I got a taste of East Coast heat when I was back in Virginia Beach for Father's Day. And one day it got up to like 104 and it was, uh, it was just for a little while. I'm not sure. I guess the, the breeze off the ocean was gone, but man, I do, I do not miss that humid heat. Yeah, I have um, extended family on, on my wife's side um, in Georgia, and the heat index was like 117 last week. Um, so that's pretty brutal. But um, it, things have been heating up at Vint as well. Over the last week, we've had <laughs> three different collections sell out. We had our Domain de la Romani Conti horizontal collection, um, which was a $53,000 total value collection. Um, that offering sold out last week. We also had our Screaming Eagle offering, um, which launched earlier this week, as in two days ago, I guess, when this episode goes live on Monday, it was $131,000 collection. And we sold that collection out in less than 24 hours. And kind of on the back of that collection, our Germany offering, which had been on the website, on the platform for some time, it was also a $53,000 collection also sold out. So right now, if you head over to the Vint um, collections page, you'll see our white burgundy collection, a longstanding offering that has been on the site for some time is at 92% sold out as of recording. We still have 346 shares remaining at $30 per share. This is an offering that we've talked about a lot of different times on the Vint podcast, even gone in depth a few different times. It's a collection of predominantly white wines. We're able to get excellent pricing on these wines. It represents some of the top white burgundies. Um, white wines in Burgundy, featuring Domaine de la Romani Conti, Montrachet in that offering as well. So if you did miss out on our last Domaine de la Romani Conti horizontal collection, you can pick up a collection that features some of those wines um, uh, from the DRC label, but also a super rare collaborative collection among some different producers in Burgundy that also features Domaine de la Romani Conti juice. Yeah, aside from our collection selling out, we're, you know, continuing to evolve our product. We've had good feedback from folks on our new website, including uh, new collection pages and home pages. So thank you all for your feedback. Head over to the platform and check those things out if you have not. On the back end of this episode, we have an exciting interview with Jordan Ogron, who is a restaurateur and wine shop owner in West Hollywood. Billy will give a little bit more extensive of an intro, but we're excited to share that interview with you all at the end of the episode. Yeah. And then building on more excitement, we also had an article come out featuring Adam's announcement. So Adam, as we mentioned a couple episodes ago, our new director of wine, we got a decanter had an exclusive uh, announcement of his coming on and has a great quote from Adam. And that's been great to see that that article be featured on their homepage uh, over the this past weekend. So we're really excited to have Adam on and keep looking for Vint in the news because we keep popping up. Yeah. And this, you know, the kind of increased attention around our collections as we've grown too, I think has been nice to see as different alternative asset platforms, you know, pick up profiles on our offerings as they come out. And as we've continued to 
increase the cadence by which our collections come out, which we'll you know continue to do now that Adam is on. I think we'll be seeing a lot more event in the news, and which is always nice to have positive media out there and really engage our community. Yeah, and then always, if you ever see it in, us in the news, pass it on to your friend because it always that always helps us. Every little bit counts. Yeah. So, yeah, circling back a little bit for our, our interview today, Jordan is someone who I got connected with through a collector out here in Los Angeles, and he runs an an awesome restaurant called Tess and a bottle shop that's connected called Boutier. And he told us a really cool story, and, and he'll kind of go into it too. But I, I didn't know that that Boutier is kind of the the partner back in the day to the role of the sommelier, the, the boutier guy was kind of the, the cellar keeper in the house, which I thought was really interesting. He kind of manages keeping the wine safe and then the sommelier brings the wine and serves it. So I thought that was a fun fact. He goes in a little, a little bit more detail in the podcast, but uh, did you know that before the the podcast, Brady? Yeah, I, no, I didn't know that. I always think it's really cool when, um, you know, brands have stories like that behind their name and, you know, little tidbits that you don't know about. Um, so yeah, that was awesome to hear. And, um, that creativity is if, if I, if I had a shop, that's exactly what I'd be going for. Nice. Yeah. I think we're just going to keep it short and sweet for, for this intro this time. So enjoy our interview with Jordan here. Uh, we'll cover everything from his favorite wine regions to how he chooses wines for the restaurant to kind of trends and things that he's seeing going on in the wine world. So enjoy our interview with Jordan Ogron. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Billy. How are you? I'm doing very well. Really excited to, to have Jordan on. I've, I've been in touch with him for a number of months now. I've had many good times at his restaurant tests, and then he helped us acquire some of the bottles that we tasted with Channing and Jacob up there in Willamette Valley. So we're really excited to have you. First, let's start with how did you get into wine originally? Has it been through the restaurant and retail channels at first or... How, how did you make your way into the industry? Uh, well, I don't think anyone <laughs> ever chooses to be in this industry. You kind of just fall into it <laughs> in a way. <laughs> My dad uh, was a prominent lawyer. I grew up in Vegas and, you know, we were fortunate enough to be able to go out to nice dinners when I was younger. And, uh, you know, growing up in Vegas, you're around a lot of wine, a lot of Psalms, you know, down on the strip. And so I grew up, you know, seeing my dad you know, drink some good Napa cabs and get some board and use some good Bordeaux's. And, and I've always been around wine, funny enough. So it's like a, like a second language to me, almost. I'm not a trained sommelier. I don't even like the word, to be honest. I think it's just a, a little pretentious. A lot of people would disagree with that, but that's just my personal feeling. It's just a, a real passion. I used to be an opera singer, uh, you know, traveled the world doing that. And it's just, that was a, not the best lifestyle. And so I decided to tackle my other passion in food and wine. You might be surprised to hear you're not the first former opera singer we've had on the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, there's Master Sommelier. I know you don't like Sommelier. Um, David Keck has come on. He's actually helping or he's farming some wine grapes up in Vermont now. But apparently he was a opera singer before his wine days as well. Nice. There's definitely some kind of correlation there. It must be like the the character traits, something like diligence, determination, these kinds of things that, that keep people committed to both opera and wine. <laughs> yeah. Well, they so go how, well together, you know, hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, how did you then make your way, I guess, to L.A. and then settling in, you know, I guess, working in restaurants and then setting up your own restaurant and shop? Yeah. So I moved to L.A. 
well, originally from Vegas, moved to Orange County for high school and then ended up going to USC, which, you know, left me here in LA and I love LA and worked my way through restaurants, you know, being a wine director, uh, started my career at 20 years old uh, at Rivera, uh, which was a restaurant in downtown across from the Staples Center. And I co-wrote that list in the beginning with a master psalm named Stephen Geddes, who is a, a great guy based in Las Vegas. And really just uh, that was a Spanish driven list and, you know, South American focus list really got a lot of my floor training there uh, from my mentor uh, at the time, who is just a phenomenal front of the house service guy. Uh, that was, he got his training through the Michael Mina ranks and from Rivera. Um, it was weird because in my career, I, you know, done a lot of mom and pop style restaurants. And then I've also worked in large corporate companies. I couldn't figure out what I liked more. So when I was younger, I kept going, you know, mom and pop to corporate and back and forth. So I went from Rivera to uh, Fig and Olive, moved to New York for almost two years and helped them open a few locations there. And then uh, came back to LA and opened the one uh, on over on La Cienega and Melrose. And uh, from there, uh, then went to Bestia, uh, which is kind of my claim to fame as a general manager. Uh, it was the first time I had opened a restaurant as a general manager in downtown LA. And still to this day, their 10 year anniversary, I believe, is in November. And it still takes two or three months to get in there. So I was there for about a year and a half. And after working six days a week, 14, 15 hour days. I was the only manager. I just got really tired and decided to go back to corporate for the nice pay raise and an easy work schedule. Went back to New York actually for a year for the Standard Hotel Group and helped them open a restaurant uh, in Soho. Uh, I'm sorry, East Village. And um, and then came back here and worked for uh, Hakkasan Group uh, and helped them with a few locations here and in Vegas. And just got really tired of the corporate workplace where you feel like you're not heard as an employee and you're just trying to do the best for the company. And so that was kind of my motivation to really uh, own my own business. And so I had called Bill Chates, who's now my business partner, but a gentleman I had worked for since the beginning of my career because he was the owner of or co-owner of uh, Rivera and Bestia. And I called Bill and I said, look, I, I don't want to work for you, but I'd love to partner with you on a, on a restaurant project. And so that's how uh, Tess was born. Here we are today with uh, a beautiful 4,000 square foot restaurant and another 1,200 square foot uh, wine store called Boutelier that's attached to it that we also use as a private dining room. Awesome. Yeah, I will say um, Bestia is still great to this day. I can attest to that. It does take yep. forever to get in. So kudos on starting that up. But how did you decide to have the bottle shop and the restaurant together? I, I think that's such an interesting kind of component because, you know, not only does it add space to have extra dinners or private spaces, but I think it actually adds an element to the wine experience as well. Yeah. I mean, one of my dreams has always been to have a wine store. I just really love wine and I've always wanted to curate, you know, in a way, my own collection to share with everybody else and kind of my vision of how wine should be sold. And, you know, when you, no matter where you go around the world, for the most part, you know, when you go to a winery, 
you know, their tasting room or, or their shop is always so gorgeous. You know, the way that they present the bottles, <clears throat> just every, every little design detail of uh, a tasting room or, or a shop at a, at a wine, uh, at a winery is always just really incredible. And, you know, when you go to your local wine store, like near where you live, some people get wine at the grocery store. Some people go to, you know, liquor stores or, or small wine shops. And I just don't think that any of those places uh, pay homage to the wines as the winery does, you know, because when you walk into any wine store, for the most part, you know, there's cardboard boxes everywhere and you have stickers all over the bottles. And, you know, it's just your, the wine is just kind of thrown on a shelf or thrown in, you know, left in the box, thrown on the floor kind of thing. And it's just, I just feel like it's, it, up until this point that, you know, that I've had my wine store, I just feel like wine is so disrespected after it leaves the winery. So Boutelier is more of an upscale retail experience, you know, kind of like if you were to go to any designer store, clothing store, and that's, there really is not that kind of experience in the world of wine shopping. And so that was kind of our goal with Boutelier and the word Boutelier was a word that was used in the 17th or 18th century because our logo is is a key and the boutelier was the guard or the the at that time the gentleman that held the key to the king's cellar and oh. so the king would tell the boutelier what he'd want to drink and he would uh, retrieve it from the cellar and then give it to the sommelier who would pour the wine so that's how those two words kind of play with each other and so our logo is the key because I feel like we have uh, a pretty cool uh, collection that, you know, a king from the 17th or 18th century would be, you know, happy to drink. So does that answer? Yeah, that's really great. I want to lean a little bit more into that idea of elevating the retail experience a bit, because, you know, I mean, the, like you said, the presentation often at, and it's no dig on local wine shops, but you know, it can sometimes be sloppy or, and it doesn't help to elevate the customer experience in that way. What particular components have you thought, if you could just maybe name two or three components that you really focused on, you said, if we can do this right, if we can do this presentation right, it's going to elevate the experience. What were those components? Sure. So, you know, if you think about your experience, when you walk into a Louis Vuitton or Gucci or any of those kinds of stores, you know, it's, you don't, grab the products and go to the counter, you know, very rare, you know, you usually have someone that helps you that, you know, gets everything for you. And so in Boutelier, you know, the, the wines are presented in a way where they're not laying fully down, but they're angled so that you can see the labels properly. Every single wine in the store has its, has its own wood engraved tag. That is not an easy process because every tag has to be uh, designed on its own, you know, in a design program. And then we send a huge file off to our engraver that uses a laser cutter. And, uh, and then uh, <clears throat> we really don't want people to have to, you know, we don't have baskets or any way for people to put wine. You know, the point is, is that they're not supposed to be grabbing bottles. You know, when you go to a grocery store, you throw all the bottles in your cart, you know, it's not that kind of experience. So you have your own personal shopper. We get the bottles for you. We have beautiful reusable bags that people love and use when they take to restaurants. Wine carriers are also something that's not, you know, readily available. So 
there's not a lot of options for them. So our bags are used as wine carriers, but the experience is, you know, you have someone that shops with you um, and, and retrieves the bottles for you. Uh, we don't sticker any of the bottles because the, the barcode that we use is on the back of the wood tag. Uh, and it's just really a, a nice experience as, if, as if you were at the winery. Yeah. But I'd, I'd imagine, I'd imagine you have folks that, that really appreciate that level of the quality experience, but also imagine there's folks that would say that, you know, what you're doing there is just pretentious. What, what do you say to folks who don't understand the project in terms of the experience that you're trying to create? Well, the only thing that might come off pretentious is that the wines in our store are a little bit, uh, you know, the median price, I would say, is a little bit higher than normal stores. And that's just because mm-hmm. our collection is really about 80% of the wines that we have in our store. And, you know, we have a very large collection, over a million bottles, like way over a million bottles. Uh, not all in the store, but, you know, just in general. Um, we have about 6,000 different SKUs in the store. But, um, you know, our, our collection, our, our focus on the collection is that these are wines that you can't find anywhere else. And, you know, we have wines that are 15, $16 and we have wines that are, you know, 10 to $20,000, but the median average of what's in the store is, you know, probably around 40, $50, $60, somewhere in that range, you know, and, you know, when you go to a grocery store, the median average there is probably 10, 15 bucks, you know? So, so people might think that it's, a little pretentious in that way, but the value is insane because instead of going to the grocery store and buying a current vintage Cabernet for $20 at, at, at Boutelier, you can get a mm-hmm. 2010 Cabernet for $50 or $45, you know, so you can say it's more expensive, but you get way more quality and value in, in purchasing stuff from our store. So that's the difference. And people yeah. really do love the experience because so many people always want to ask questions about wine, which is great, you know, and, but they always, you know, I'm sure we've all shopped for wine. We always want to make sure that what we're shopping for, we're going to like it. Right. So, you know, people always ask like, what are the qualities of this? Or I, I love this. What do you suggest? And uh, they really love the hands-on experience. And sometimes there's not enough people to help all the people in the store, which is, uh, you know, a good problem to have. So. Yeah, I like the comparison to Gucci or Louis Vuitton, um, you know, because you've created this experience that sounds like it's really elevated. But then at the same time, you just said you do have, you know, bottles, 15, 20, $25. And I mean, you certainly can't find a $15 handbag um, at Louis Vuitton. Right. So I like that right. you've kind of incorporated the, you've incorporated the experience, but at the end of the day, it sounds like there's still a lot of accessibility. Oh yeah, no, it's a wine store for everybody. We're just like, a, you know, we're, I like to say the best kept secret because we, don't we don't have an online presence? Um, mm. It's a pure brick and mortar store. Um, a lot of people do know about the store, but not enough. Um, but what what we also do is that after you dine inside of Tess, uh, we give you twenty percent off off anything in the store after dinner, uh, which is always a great perk because then you you know you're getting things for even more value than you would just walking in and buying it. Yeah, and then building on Brady's point of the experience but also you know the, the range of price points all the way up to the, the top tier you're you're putting some wines on a not on a pedestal but there there's equal footing for all of them so it's like sometimes when you go to a wine store maybe the the nice setup will only be for the you know first growth bordeaux or maybe the burgundy but it's really cool to go through your shop and see everything from i mean of course those wines are there but there's you know 
nicely aged like Beaujolais or there's some great Etna Rosso from a really cool producer. I think you're it's it's nice to see the the lesser known folks that are still making amazing wine being put in the the same kind of treated the same as some of those names that maybe people know more. A hundred percent. And we also, you know, we give at every winery that we, you know, that we carry an equal eye. And what I mean by that is unlike I think every other store, I don't know any other store that sells wine by grape varietal. Usually it's by region. You know, when you walk in the store, you don't see, you know, California, you know, Bordeaux, you don't see any of that. You see Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, you see Pinot Noir, you know, Syrah and Grenache, Nebbiolo Sangiovese. So, you know, when you're looking at the cab wall, you're seeing Cabernet, not only from California, but from Australia and France, you know, because a lot of Bordeaux are cab based. So that's where we put a lot of, you know, all the cabs go on one wall. So when people are like, well, I only like, you know, like to drink California cab, but when you see a California cab average is, you know, for a decent one is 50, 60 bucks, but you can have this Cabernet from Italy for 25, you know, it's a good thing to see side by side that you usually don't see in other stores. Yeah, for sure. So on that note, are there any, I'm sure we can kind of frame this in a bunch of ways, but are there any regions that the store focuses on? And then are there any favorites or regions that you feel are underappreciated that you're trying to kind of bring to prominence it through um, Boutier? Well, the store, we have mostly um, wine from everywhere, except for Greece. And it's just because it's not a big market. And I personally am not a big fan of Greek wine and, <clears throat> and I don't have anything against it. It just, I, I've never really gotten into it. And so I don't know much about it. I don't even, I think I maybe know one great varietal from there. That's definitely something I need to, to learn. But my whole career, I've always said that Spanish wine is underappreciated. And it's also still to this day, the best value, you know, and, and all the time when people come into tests and they're like, you know, I, I'd like to drink a cab. You know, I usually bring them like a, a garnacha from a region called Campo de Borja, which is in between Rioja and Barcelona. <clears throat> And it's always hot there, like Napa <clears throat> and the and the garnachas they produce and the way they make them. It's very difficult to tell the difference between a Napa cab and, and a garnacha from that area. And so people are always flabbergasted about how good it is and that it's cheaper than a cab they usually drink. And so I just really think that there are a lot of hidden gems in Spain, killer values and people that love Pinot Noir, you know, Tempranillo from the Rioja region specifically, that's like the Pinot Noir of Spain is what I always say. You know, the Tempranillo grape offers a different style of fruit than the Pinot Noir, uh, you know, gives off. But I, I like to say it's an elevated uh, flavor profile of a Pinot Noir. And I just absolutely love Spanish wines. I've, And that's probably because I started my career at Rivera and that was mostly a Spanish wine list and South American wine list. Um but I just, I still cannot, uh, I left my heart in Spain the first time I went there. Uh, it's just, the wines are just incredible. So, you know, this, we focus heavily, obviously, on, on European wines and, and California. We do have some Australia, New Zealand, Moroccan, probably forgetting like another 10 <laughs> countries. But no, I mean, we, we're definitely a worldly store. And I think people, people are happy with what they see. Is there, is there a difference in... I'm sure there is, but you can describe it, the difference between how you think about 
um, purchasing wine for the list at the restaurant now, and then, you know, stocking, not stocking the shelves, but uh, building a list for your, um, the retail shop? Well, yeah. So the, the, uh, sorry, Tess has a completely separate offering than the wine store. We do that on purpose. So, you know, people don't see wines at different prices, you know, on the wine list and in the store, because it's hard to explain to people why there's an extra markup for wine in a restaurant. So we have a fairly large list and we focus on, I always, my whole career, I focused on smaller wineries than larger wineries. Um, I don't do a lot of business with Southern glazers or, you know, the big, the big uh, wine conglomerates, as I like to say, that kind of own the market. I like to help the small guys, you know, the, the small family owned businesses uh, that produce great cult wines. So that's what we focus on for the most part. And the store is, you know, like I said, we have a very large collection that has been curated, you know, over my lifetime and and even before I was born through family collections, family friends collections. We have a very large warehouse where we where we age wine. And we have wines in the store going all the way back to 1928, I believe, or 1921, something like that. And it used to be in the 18 late 1800s, but I had a uh, Madeira from the late 1800s that I sold a year or two ago. So but a lot of what we purchase now in Boutelier specifically is stuff that is not going to be on the shelf, you know, for another four or five years. So, you know, the way that I've always taught people to properly collect, uh, properly collect is if you can't afford it, you know, you buy at least two cases of a wine, if not three, so that you can drink one now, as I like to say, get it out of your system, <laughs> you know, because always anticipation it kills, you know, and it makes you want to break that case and open it. So I always say, get one case to drink now, get one case to put away, maybe to sell later. And the, and the third case is meant to try over time, you know, so open one in three years, open one in five years, you know, seven years or whatever it is, but it's, it's cool to collect that way. And so that's what we do as well. You know, we buy uh, three to five cases of, of whatever wine and put it away and see how it ages over time. Obviously, we don't drink one case. We, we just have to have enough to sell. But we do, you know, every so often taste the wines as they age. And the way that we taste them is through wine dinners that we have in the restaurant. So, you know, we'll put like we have a wine dinner coming up in July called a tour through France. And we're doing a wine from, you know, Champagne and, and the, Loire, uh, the Loire Valley. We're doing a Sancerre and we're doing a, a Burgundy, a white Burgundy and then a red Burgundy. You know, we're going to have a Rhone, you know, Chateauneuf, uh, Bordeaux. So, you know, we're going to go all around. And uh, and that's how we taste some of our collection is by uh, you know, having wine dinners and selling wine that way as well. So it's a lot of fun. And there's the, the synergy between the test list and the, and the Boutelier offering has always been good, luckily, because it wasn't something that I had put too much thought in, you know, into before we open. So it's, it's worked and I can't complain. Nice. Do you see collectors coming specifically to you just based on your, your selection or the availability of back vintage that they might either, you know, maybe they have a gap in their collection or maybe they're looking for something they can drink sooner rather than holding it for 20 years? We do. We definitely do. Those that know about us for sure, you know, and, and wine collectors, you know, they all talk. So over the years, we just celebrated our four-year anniversary this past weekend. And, uh, you know, two years, I guess, if you take away COVID. But 
over the last four years, you know, we've had a lot of different collectors, you know, come in looking for certain things, some of which are almost impossible to find others that we've had and been able to help them with that. Um, but I love the collectors that come in and they're like, you know, I have one bottle of this and I really don't want to open it. But if you have like another bottle or two, then I, then I want to buy them so I can open one right now. You know, and it was, we just talked about how anticipation kills and some of these collectors are just itching to open the one bottle that they have, but if they can have an opportunity to buy another one, then they don't feel so bad opening it, you know? So we get a lot of that too, which is great to see. Now, like, you know, you have the you know, warehouse full collection that is related to the shop, right? Do you have a personal seller or one that, you know, doesn't see the retail side at all? And it's just, you know, for you personally? Yeah, I do. And um, I've kind of taken my personal passion and kind of have uh, um, injected it into Boutelier a little bit in the, in the lock cellar in Boutelier, we have a back room that has all the high-end stuff. One of the walls we call the birth year wall because we take pride in having everyone's birth year for wines that were produced and and decent, at least. You know, there's some vintages like mine, unfortunately, where it's very, very difficult to find good wine in that specific vintage. And I'm 1987, which, you know, was only a semi-decent year in Rioja and in Napa. And other than that, you're kind of out of luck. <laughs> so my personal collection is is focused on finding a lot of 87s because it's so hard to get your hands on on good ones. And then I have you know some sentimental wines for whatever reason stories and stuff that you know I have one or two bottles left that I just I like to hold on to. And I don't have the largest collection because I'm always focused on you know buying for the restaurant and for this for the store, but if there's something you know, newer that comes out, like there's a wine called uh, Bizerno that's made by Ludovic Antonori. And it's a fairly new project. And I tried the first vintage, which was a 2016, I believe, or at least the first vintage in the US. I don't know when his first vintage in Italy was, but I just remember tasting that wine and which is kind of a competitor to a Sasakaya or a Maceto. And it's like the a 20th of the value. And I just absolutely just blew my mind. And so, you know, when I taste something like that, that I've never seen before, never tried before, you know, I'll usually buy myself a case as well and put it away. And so like, that's a perfect example of something I just did not too long ago, because that wine was just shockingly good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd probably say I have, you know, five, 500 bottles. That's about it. Pretty minimal. Do you have um, any favorite producers making up some of that? I know you've mentioned um, Realm in the past and you've mentioned Lopez de Heredia. Yeah, so in in Napa, Realm is is like the best kept secret. Um, You know, a lot of people come into the store and they ask me for Screaming Eagle or Harlan or Bond. And I love Harlan and Bond. Not the biggest fan of Screaming Eagle for the price, but Realm, uh, especially the the Absurd, which is their, their top wine. I mean, I'll put that up against Harlan or, or Screaming Eagle any day. I mean, the wine is just incredible. And again, uh, it's expensive, but it's nowhere near the price of Harlan or Screaming Eagle. Um, and that'd be from California. I mean, in Spain, it's like asking me, what child do I like more? It's it's, it's hard to choose. But I mean, I love Lopez de Heredia. I've, I love that family. Uh, Maria Jose and Mercedes are just great, 
great people, great sisters. Um, Halta. It's all on that one that one road in 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 uh, Aro. This mm-hmm. is amazing wineries there, and I have to say that another wine that's from Spain, but not in the Rioja region. It's from uh, Roberto Duero. Is Vega Sicilia, which is the the I mean the it's the king winery of Spain because that's what the king also drank. But the Unico, you know, that they produce is just miraculous. And again, put I would put that up against any of the best wines around the world. Just really incredible stuff that's produced in Spain. And out of Italy, you know, I just talked about it, but Bizerno, it's it's unreal, just unreal. And and they didn't pay me to talk about how good the wine is. I'm just <laughs> putting that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are some of my favorites right now. Do you have any favorite up in like Piemonte or anywhere in more in Northern Italy? Yeah, so I actually, uh, I wouldn't say I make it, but I definitely have a say on it is of, of a Barolo in uh, that we produce, you know, with under the Boutelier logo with amazing winery uh, called Cascina Adelaide, A-D-E-L-A-I-D-E. And Mr. Draco, he's in his 80s now, but the man is just an unbelievable person. So funny. And he really puts a lot of love into his wines. And again, it's a small producer. I think they collectively, they have about eight to 10 different labels and they only make 50,000 bottles, I think, or 100,000 bottles, but, you know, total for the whole winery, which is so small. Um, And their wines are just absolutely incredible for the value. And I'm a big value guy because I think when people shop, you know, I always put my, my mentality in in the hands of, you know, the customer and, you know, we're all human. We, we go and we shop for wine and it's not like we just go and blindly choose, you know, the most expensive stuff. No, we want the best quality for the value. So I always have that in mind, you know, when I'm helping make wine or selling wine or buying wine, it's always about value for me. So you know, there are other great producers, like there's this incredible female winemaker, Kiara Boschke, and she just keeps getting 100 point after 100 point after 100 point. Um, and her 2016 Via Nuovo, Via Nuova, sorry, was one of the best Barolos I've ever had in my lifetime. There's just so many great wines up there. And I was just there not too long ago in, in uh, November and uh, was there at the height of truffle season, which is always, uh, you know, a good thing to experience. My God, it was wonderful. But yeah, I would say those two wineries right now are at the top of my list, Kashin Adelaide and, and Kiara Boschke. Nice. Now, Jordan, um, when you when you talk about like collectors coming in and you have kind of have a profile in your head of who, what a collector is, do you also think investment tied into that? You know, you had mentioned oh, maybe you have a case to hold and sell later. Are you always kind of thinking that those go hand in hand? I mean, you know, collecting, no matter how expensive or inexpensive, collecting is expensive because if you're buying something and not using it or or consuming it, you know, you're just sitting on cash. And so a lot of collectors that, you know, do this as a passion, um, it is a heavy investment. And, you know, the one thing, unless you have a big home with a nice wine cellar or, or wine, a big wine fridge, you know, it's you usually have to store offsite at a you know a offsite wine storage facility with you know that have nice cellars and those are expensive. You know, just for me for my what I would call little collection, I pay three hundred dollars a year. You know, I get a you know family discount because I know the owner, but I think a space of that I have would be normally seven hundred and fifty dollars or eight hundred dollars. 
you know, that's a lot of money uh, for, mm-hmm. and that's per year. That's just to store your wine, you know? And so you have to add all that money that you spend into that collection. And if you are a collector and you invest your, you, for, you can't make any of your storage money back for sure, unless you have, you know, three cases, right. Or, or multiple cases, especially if you want to drink some of it. So, you know, that's how I think about when it was what I think about when it comes to collecting and how people collect. And there's obviously people that are deep into collect collecting, they can afford it. So they don't really think about selling stuff off, but, you know, I'll keep his name private, but I was a, a big client and, and friend of mine, uh, was the president of Capitol records for many, 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 many years. And he had a collection of, you know, about 10,000 bottles. And uh, when he got sick, he passed away a few years ago now, but you know, when he got sick and knew that he wouldn't drink anymore, he had uh, enough value to probably the money that he made, if he did sell it would have paid for all of his drinking (laughs) for the last 30 years, you know? So if you're a smart collector, you can kind of drink for free. (laughs) So just depends on what you buy and if you're willing to sit on all that money and pay for the storage and blah, 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 you know? And so if you think about it, when, especially when you think about like Bordeaux, for example, when Bordeaux comes out, if you buy it, you know, if you, you know, if you pre-buy it, which so many people do now, you know, you can get a Margot for, you know, five, 600 bucks, 700 bucks. Um, if you pre-buy it, you know, but, they don't release it for another four or five years after you buy it. So, you know, you just bought something, you know, you bought thin air for five years, you know, and, and if you wait and you buy it when it's on the shelf, you know, you probably pay 13, $1,400, which is what you usually see it for online. And, you know, and that's when, right when it comes out, you know, 10 years later, that same bottle is going to be worth three, four, $5,000, depending on the vintage and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you see it just in the regular purchasing market too. It's not just the collecting, you know, so when, a, when, what I'm trying to say is when a winery re-releases a vintage, you know, it's definitely not the same price that it was when it first came out 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever vintage it is. It's, it's double, triple, quadruple the price. And that's if the winery sells it. So there is a lot of value in collecting. I mean, I love what you guys are doing with your platform because I, I really think it will teach a lot of people about just collecting in general and and how valuable it is when it's when it's done correctly. Now I think that's that's really interesting. And and to me, I guess, do you see any trends from these collectors in terms of what you're what they're buying on the ground? Like obviously we can track stuff via LiveX and we kind of know where the macro market's moving, but it, it would be interesting to see if you're seeing any trends of people purchasing things that they might not have before. Um what do you see in there in the shop? You know, it's it's tough because when people come into our store, they know what they're walking into. So, you know, we do get a lot of questions like, do you have Sasakaya? Do you have, you know, the the big boys, you know, do you have, you know, Tinianello, that kind of stuff where, you know, people always ask because it's a hot collector's item and and those wines, you know, will always have value. So the the people that do have collections and like to collect, you know, we definitely get those questions a lot. Um, and those same people, you know, I introduce, you know, Bizerno to them, you know, just as an example, mm. and, you know, they're shocked by the value. And I'm sure at some point Bizerno is going to be just as expensive as Sasakaya, but, um, you know, 
It's a great question, but I don't think it's applicable to me just because of we're not really a high volume store, but, you know, forever until, you know, I'm dead and we're all dead and gone and our kids are dead and gone. Bordeaux, Burgundy and California will always be (laughs) the hot topics, you know, what people look for. So, I mean, Bordeaux and Burgundy, they just don't make enough. And it's it's just crazy. Uh, the, The gray market, as we call it you know, wines that are purchased by a collector are sold, you know, for a, a much higher number. And then the person that bought it sells it again. And, you know, it's, by the time uh, someone could drink a Margot, it could be sold five or six times, you know? Mm-hmm. So the the value of, of, of Bordeaux and Burgundy are, are just insane. And uh, California is getting there, you know, big time with, you know, some of the more cult, harder to get producers. It's insane now like how expensive these wines are and it's are really just, and it's really just because of the market it's not even because of the winery the winery still for the most part sells it you know maybe they have a, a two or three percent increase every year because you know labor costs or whatever but it's not like harlan went from selling their wine for for 500 and you know now it's 2000 it's just they sell it for i believe you know the same price and and it's the market that's blowing it up because the demand, you know, supply and demand is how it goes. You've already talked about, you know, some of the ways going back to the beginning of the conversation when we discussed um, elevating the retail experience. If you look, you know, five, 10 years down the line, are there more things that you're looking to accomplish in it's still talking the retail space to help push the industry forward and either make it more accessible or, you know, drive the customer experience forward? Have you thought about what five, 10 years down the line looks like as you as you push the envelope there? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I, I, you know, a lot of it has to do with, uh, of what I would want to see is obviously going to be a struggle with, especially in California with regulation. But, you know, I really think that liquor and wine, they need to be able to be like tasted, you know, before being purchased, you know? And so I, at Boutelier, we don't do it right now because it's hard to get people, but, you know, for uh, a while we had, uh, uh, tasting menus, you know, where um, people could, you know, pick a bottle that they wanted to try. Obviously, not something that is like Sasakaya or like crazy like that, but, you know, anything under 200, 250 bucks, if they were going to, you know, purchase a case or whatever, you know, and they wanted to try it, we would coravan it and, and include it in our, you know, our tasting options on the tasting menus. Um, you know, so I really think that people should have the opportunity to try wine because. That's why people go to wineries, you know? So I think the retail experience on everyone's level, which I'm sure the wineries would support, by the way, you know, give a bottle or two, you know, we could Corvan over time. But I really think that, you know, to educate people more and to have more conversations about wine, especially inside of the retail stores, you know, if, if, if customers are able to taste it, I think it would generate even more sales and create more demand, you know, which is a good thing, you know, because if you think about, they don't really do it anymore, especially now after COVID. But, you know, when I growing up as a kid, every other aisle, you know, there was a, a person there with uh, with a little table and with samples. You guys remember that? Oh, yeah. You, know, you go in a sure. grocery store and like you yeah. can almost yeah. eat a full meal just by trying samples, at, you know. At, tr- at Trader Joe's, you, you can ask them to open any bottle for you and they'll, they'll let you taste the wine. Um, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. There. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Um you know, back in the day when we were growing up, you know, you could try a lot of things. I mean, that was, it was like, that was the way of marketing, 
you know, PR and marketing back then, you know, there was no social media, Instagram, all that stuff. And so, you know, but even with social media, it's like you, you can't use, it's great marketing because you know the name, but you still don't know what it tastes like, you know? And as at the end of the day, if you see something on Instagram, are you, maybe you'll buy it once, you know, to try it, but uh, you're buying one bottle, you know? And if you don't like it, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna buy it again. You know, if people do sample it and they love it, maybe you'll sell 12 bottles, you know? So I don't know. I think there's pros and cons, but I, I really think that five to 10 years from now, to answer your question, I think there should be more focus on uh, all retailers, you know, finding a, a economical way to allow people to try the wine. And like I said, it could also come out of the marketing budgets of the wineries because people travel to the wineries and taste the wine and that's in their marketing budget. So, you know, they can always send a bottle or two to their best retailers. You know, it doesn't have to be every store, obviously, but I think that that would be really cool. But the regulation behind that is actually pretty heavy, pretty deep. So, you know, there'd be, there would need to be a lot that's changed to allow that to happen. Cool. Well, diving in there then, I think I, those are like most of our questions. I have, for me, I guess, my last question is back on the kind of the wine nerd side of things. What regions are, that are kind of emerging or producers that are emerging, have you been really getting into that you think are some of the outside of Spain, maybe some of the best values? I don't know if it's somewhere down like Sicily or if there's a lesser known producer in a, a region that's, you know, already really big. What, what are you feeling on that value side of things? Like if we're looking at that 25, 30 range and, and yeah, I mean, uh, there are some great producers here in California that are starting to produce out of like the Lodi area. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of wines that you see now, they don't really have a specific region. They're just called California, you know, wine, because they, they kind of pull from Lodi and Paso and like different areas. And I mean, that's allowed. You just can't name a specific region on there. So, you know, when you see like a California wine that and the region just says California, you know, it could really be from anywhere, but there's a lot of good value wines that are being labeled just as California now that are really, really miraculous, to be honest, for the price. I mean, just really incredible value. And like we serve one of these style wines by the glass at Tess. It's called Colt, C-U-L-T, funny enough, because I like Colt wine. And it's mostly produced in Lodi. I mean, most uh, 80%, 90% of the, of the grapes are from Lodi. But the owner of this, I don't want I don't know if I want to like tell this story because I'm afraid that now it's going to like sell out like crazy. But um, I believe the owner of the winery uh, or maybe it's the winemaker. I'm not, I don't remember offhand, but I believe it's the owner. He has a few vineyards in Beckstoffer, one uh, you know, a few uh, rows of Beckstoffer vines. And I believe all of the grapes that are not used in whatever wine he produces using those grapes, uh, he puts into the Colt wine. Wow. You know, because instead of throwing them in the garbage, he he uses them as as value grapes uh, and and just adds it, you know, to the Lodi fruit. And you know, this wine is just absolutely incredible for under twenty dollars. You know, retail, it's <laughs> it'll blow your socks off because you the finish is crazy, like you would get from a five hundred dollar cap. And we serve it by the glass, and it's just absolutely delicious. So something like that is 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 really cool, really cool. Yeah, that is. That it's really cool. Yeah, we hopefully some of our listeners are familiar with Beckstoffer. One of the NFTs we did with a, a Sonoma producer. Um, they're based in Sonoma, but they have some some Napa based wines, and they had something Beckstoffer. So 
I think people will be familiar. Yeah. I mean, but to get like a, a little bit of, you know, that Beckstoffer quality in a, in a wine like, uh, like that is, is crazy good value, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's like pulling from, I don't know. I mean, the first growth vineyards can expand. I don't want to put on the parallel of like DRC, but it's like basically pulling from one of these Grand Cru vineyards and just putting it in a, a village exactly. wine. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining. I think those are all my things. Where Can you uh, share exactly where Tess is again, just in case anybody wants to visit when they're out here, Tess in the bottle shop? Yeah, Tess is in West Hollywood on the corner of Sunset and La Cienega next to Fred Siegel been there four years and look forward to many many more yeah i can attest it's a beautiful space so everybody should visit when they come out here but thanks again jordan we appreciate the time awesome thanks guys thanks jordan